Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. Good afternoon. You are listening to WORT 89.9 FM. My name's Ali Muldrow, and this is a public affair. Today, we are so grateful to be on the air with Nick Patrick, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is the co-author of a new paper called The Historical Prevalence of Slavery Predicts Contemporary American Gun Gun Ownership. I'm so sorry. Nick, how are you doing today? I'm so glad that you invited me on. Thank you for for joining us for this conversation. We've been spending a lot of time talking about reproductive rights, and so we wanted to keep it a little light this week and talk about slavery and gun ownership in America. Um, I, I think, you know, in the conversation about the the right to life i think so often um the american relationship to guns is it becomes really confusing um and so i i'm curious how did you find your way into kind of studying or researching or looking at you know what predicts gun ownership so we we started this work sort of thinking about what makes america unique um, and one of the things is that you know we have more guns than almost anywhere on earth. Um, I think it's something like over one gun for every man, woman, and child. Um, and so that's a really remarkable uh, conflation of, of weapons. We also tend to think about guns differently than a lot of the rest of the world. Um, that American gunners, especially contemporary American gun owners, um, tend to say that guns the sort of things that keep them safe. Um, whereas in the rest of the world, you know, those people who do own guns don't seem to have that belief. You know, a gun might be something that you use for hunting, for sport shooting, but it's not the sort of thing that would protect you. If anything, uh, the belief is that guns are dangerous. Uh, so we sort of start from there. Why is it that Americans tend to believe that guns keep them safe? You know, what are they sort of staying safe from? Um, and so we started to unpack, uh, some of that in the work that we've been doing. When you think about, you know, what Americans are trying to protect, um, and I think that the the desire to protect yourself and to pr- protect your freedom and to protect your family is something that most of us identify with. We want to feel safe in our homes. We want to feel safe walking down the street. And if a gun makes you feel safe, um, you know, what's wrong with that? Yeah. So we, we start from this idea that, you know, there's a lot of people who believe that the world is not safe, the world is dangerous, that the institutions of society are unwilling or unable to keep them safe, right? If you have these beliefs, you know, you might be really worried about your safety. Uh, You might also really be worried about your ability to control the world. Uh, It becomes really chaotic. You might be really worried about your ability to sort of have a meaningful life. Um, And we think that for a lot of people, guns help address all of these worries. Um, And you're right, you know, in some sense, if a gun can help you cope with your psychological uh, the psychological threats that you deal with every day. Like, that's not a bad thing. But at the same time, a gun is really dangerous, right? Having one in your house doubles the likelihood that somebody is going to die by violent homicide, triples the likelihood that someone in the house is going to die by violent suicide. Um, and we think that having a gun may also make the world itself seem more dangerous. And so instead of actually helping you to cope with the sorts of threats that you're dealing with, it might accidentally be exacerbating them. And so if you're worried about feeling safe, there might be other sorts of mechanisms or tools that you can use, which might not come with all of those downsides. I think the justification I've heard from folks who are kind of more on the gun enthusiast side of of the aisle is that our 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 government shouldn't have a monopoly on violence. Um, our government shouldn't be more armed than the people you know, the government is there to serve. When folks kind of talk about wanting to position themselves um, as equals and and wanting to have the same capacity for violence that the government does, um, how, how do you kind of talk about that? And, and should we 
uh, should we as as kind of citizens or average people have you know less rights to gun ownership um, than our gun than our government does? Yeah, it's a really interesting theoretical question. I think when you look at how people actually use guns in everyday life, it's almost never to actually prevent crime or to prevent victimization. I think there's one estimate that it's you know, a tiny fraction of 1% of all instances in which a gun is involved in something that shows up in the news, you know, is somebody actually using it to protect? So I think it's a theoretical question about, you know, how should people be using this? I think, you know, in a contemporary society, which, you know, is built on a welfare state, is built on sort of a covenant between people and the government uh, to radically undo that in favor of something far more libertarian, which everybody is sort of fighting for their own rights. Uh, seems to be a very different way of approaching uh, governance than almost anywhere I know in the world. Yeah, I, I do think it's something that distinguishes Americans in terms of the way we feel about our, our government and the way we feel about our guns. But I also think that uh, you know, America has an interesting history um, when you talk about the ability to trust your government. When you talk about slavery and the position that slavery has put black people in America in, in terms of the ability to to trust the government um, or to even trust the, the society itself, the overall community with your well-being is undermined through kind of the racialized terror that the black community has experienced and continues to experience. Um, I think that that's, that adds a really interesting dimension to the conversation. So without kind of jumping the gun and getting to like the real heart of this conversation, I got to ask you, why does the historical prevalence of slavery predict contemporary American gun ownership? Why and how does that does that work? Yeah. So what we've done to sort of establish this is we've looked at um, uh, a proxy for ownership in America. Uh, so the government doesn't track this formally. Um, we don't have any registries of gun ownership, and there's lots of reasons why that is. Um, but there are some pretty well-established proxies that uh, researchers use. Um, and the one that we used, which is I think the one that has the best validity, is um, if you look at uh, death data, you can look at the proportion of suicides in a county that are um, related to firearms, that are firearm sort of inflicted. And that seems to correlate incredibly highly with guns in an area. So the more guns there are, uh, the higher the rate of firearm suicide. And so we looked at this measure um, at the county level across the entire US, and then we zoomed into the South. Um, and we looked at data from the 1860 census, which is the last one before the Civil War, uh, which enumerated uh, the populations of states, um, both uh, enslaved and free. And we find that the proportion of a county that was enslaved in 1860 uh, predicts contemporary American gun ownership in the South. Um, it's a pretty strong relationship and it holds for almost every control that we have. So I want to pause right there because I'm like, are you familiar with the musical Hamilton? Okay. So one of the things I have really struggled with in, in listening and loving the musical Hamilton is the portrayal of slavery as a Southern phenomena. Um, slavery was, you know, taking place in all 13 com colonies. The last state to abolish slavery in the North was New York. The first state to abolish slavery was B Vermont. Um, so, so slavery was prevalent through, throughout the United States as the United States came to be. Why is gun ownership in the South more relevant, more related to the history of enslavement than, say, gun ownership in New York? Yeah. So I should be clear. We didn't just restrict it to the South. We restricted it to any uh, county that had enslaved populations in 1860. Okay. Um, so that includes part of uh, things that are outside of uh, the, the place that became the Confederacy. Um, that said, you know, if a state had abolished slavery in 1840, um, that doesn't sort of catch into our into our data set. Um, and I think, you know, the question as to why is a really interesting one. You know, one thing that historians seem to agree on is that the way that Americans treated guns in the colonial period is very different than we treated them today. They were much more likely to be thought of as tools, um, as a sort of thing you use for hunting, um, and maybe as sort of weapons of war, but not as a sort of thing where you would have one to like fight off your neighbor. Um, that that sort of uh, thought about how guns work uh, seemed uh, fairly unique to the modern day. And so when we're thinking about where does this idea that guns keep safe from, 
Um, that's why we think that slave becomes an especially important inflection point, uh, and especially the end of the Civil War, um, thinking about how gun ownership works. So when you think about kind of the the prevalence of guns in communities that, you know, participated in slavery, enslaved people, um, is there kind of a turning point uh, around the Civil War in terms of our attitudes around guns? Because I often think of the Civil War as the one time in American history where America gave black people the right to kill the people who were oppressing them. That has that has never happened before that, it has never happened since. Um, the expectation has been that black people, you know, are, are beaten, are brutalized, um, and, and walk it off. Um, but the Civil War is pretty unique in that it positioned black people to be violent towards the people who were being violent towards them. How did that impact the narrative we have about self-defense, the narrative we have ab- about, um, about guns? Yeah. We're thinking very much along the same lines that you are, that us the end of the Civil War um, brings with it a South that is sort of fragmented in a lot of ways, in which political power uh, is very much uh, up for claiming, and also in one which um, it's more well-armed than almost any society up to that point. Um, the Civil War produced an incredible amount of weaponry. Mm-hmm. It's one of the first uh, wars in which you had uh, sort of industrialized arms production. and. After the war, um, a lot of soldiers returned with their weapons. So you have a society which is incredibly heavily armed, uh, one in which violence is incredibly common. I think the murder rate is something like 14 times higher in the South than in the North. It's largely white on white or white on black crime. And it's also one in which um, black political power is becoming potentially uh, a threat uh, to the white planter elite. And so one of the reasons why we think that um, gun ownership and protective gun ownership might have established itself in this period is you can see where are the places in which black political power was potentially the strongest. It's the places which had the highest concentration of enslaved uh, uh, black Americans. And so if you look at those places, we think this is where you have not only the beginnings of the belief that the world is a very dangerous place and the Northern government is unwilling or unable to keep you safe, but also you have this threat of black political power, which you have to do something about. And we see a lot of rhetoric in this period in which white, uh, supremacist terrorists um, are pointing to these weapons as a way of reclaiming Southern manhood um, and Southern culture um, against this threat of a sort of uh, scary black other. Uh, mm. We think that this pattern of the idea that guns protect not just your person, but your society um, starts to crystallize um, in this specific moment in time. Thank you so much for speaking to that. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Ali Muldrow, and today we're talking about the history, culture, and psychologically behind psychology behind gun ownership in the U.S. with Professor Nick Buttrick. If you're interested in joining this conversation with a question or comment, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. I think of Wisconsin as a place that has a, a lot of a lot of folks who are, are pretty pro-gun. And I don't think necessarily because folks, you know, are are afraid of of crime in the vast majority of Wisconsin. Um, I think we have a hunting culture. And so what do you what do you say to folks who say my gun ownership has nothing to do with whether whether or not um you know, slavery happened in in the place where I come from. My gun ownership is all about the the sportsmanship of of hunting, um, and you know, I I'm interested in arming myself for that purpose. You know, exclusively. Yeah, I take them seriously, um, and I think that that is uh, there. There's a long tradition of hunting in this country, and I think that a hunting subculture of gun ownership can be separated from this idea that guns keep you safe. Um, now, oftentimes they go together. Um, but they're not necessarily the same thing. And there's definitely people who are raised in hunting cultures who treat their guns as tools, as something to be sort of, maybe not feared, but something to be respected. You have to lock it up. You have to be very careful in terms of how you store everything, um, which can be very different from the approach that people who are purely using a weapon for protection might want to use. We also think the, the weapons differ, right? It's the difference between maybe having a pistol or a handgun versus having a shotgun or a long gun. Um, and so I think that there's definitely parts of the country in which hunting cultures are still very well entrenched. But those places are getting smaller and smaller. Um, there's some estimates that 
you know, the hunting culture in the U.S. is about half the size that it was in 1960, um, whereas the cultures um, built around protection are uh, becoming increasingly, increasingly um, sort of well-established. It's interesting when you talk about the the culture that is interested in accumulating guns or building arsenals for their safety and protection. Um, And when you talk about that being, you know, dominated by white men. I would imagine that after civil the Civil War, um, that communities of color who had, had recently, you know, experienced slavery probably subscribed to gun ownership as well um, as, as a means of, of protection from a, a society um, that was, you know, perpetually brutal and discriminatory. Yeah, and there's definitely some evidence of that. Um, there's a really lovely working paper that's being... Um, that's running through the publication process right now, which suggests that um, those uh, areas in which uh, black citizens were better armed are those in which you had, for example, less lynching, um, and that black uh, firepower was able to uh, ward off some of the predatory parts of uh, the white state. Um, now that said, uh, while there's been this long tradition of sort of black militancy, when you see it most active is usually when you see the strongest counter response uh, from a, a white government. So the signal version of this is uh, the 1967 Mulford Act. So this was uh, a gun control act signed by then Governor Ronald Reagan, um, in which he radically uh, restricted the ways in which people could use guns in the state of California, uh, which was directly inspired by the Black Panthers um, and their uh, marches around the state capitol with weapons. So when you do see increases in black firearm ownership, you often see a reaction from uh, a white state um, that's interested in stamping that out. It's interesting to think about kind of the irrational fear of black people, of black people who are armed, given that kind of the data you've talked about so far would would kind of make us think that black people are are less likely throughout history um, to engage in gun violence. Black people are less likely to engage in mass shootings, are, are, are less likely um, to to murder, are, you know, not known for for lynching or enslaving people. Um, so so what kind of justifies the the fear that that is unique to black people owning guns? How do how do we get into, you know, the the headspace that people are in or somebody like Ronald Reagan, who I would imagine was pretty pro gun as a Republican. Um, How does how does he justify wanting to restrict people's guns, um, you know, and 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 target black people um, while doing that? Yeah, so I think that social scientists differ a little bit in terms of trying to understand, you know, what is going on here, so to speak. Um, I think there's a lot that is birthed in this reconstruction period um, in which you have uh, a group of people who all of a sudden come into power in a way that directly threatens certain elites. And so there are social scientists who will point to the ways in which um, the antebellum South um, and the elites in that sort of manufactured a new idea of black criminality in order to work alongside um, the white underclass at the time uh, to sort of cement a racialized loyalty as opposed to, for example, a class loyalty um, to preserve their power. Um, I think that may be part of it. um, And we definitely do see that attitudes towards Black Americans, both implicit and explicit prejudice and attitudes about the role of government does track um, with the proportion of a county that was enslaved in 1860 in the present day. So if you had higher rates of enslavement in 1860, whites in that county today are going to be more likely to um, express explicit and implicit prejudice and are more likely to say that the government should be smaller and sort of get out of their business. So I think that there's a historical pattern that's passed along intergenerationally, which might explain some of this. But I think it's not all of it. I think we have um, additional things that suggest that, you know, there are media narratives which are built in the contemporary moment, um, which help to reinforce this. Um, And there are reasons um, that may be based in politics, may also just be based in the fact that um, in this country, black Americans are often really segregated. And so white Americans don't really know what it looks like um, to live in a black experience. And so they have to sort of do imaginative work, which might be um, shaped by the the media that they consume. 
But it's a really complicated question, and it's one which I think we don't have a particularly great answer for. I do think it's a really compli- complicated question because I think the the irrational fear and hatred of black people um, is, you know, I, I think it's when you think about slavery, I think that most people would at this point say, oh, we as a society are, are deeply ashamed of that history of enslaving people. Um, and, and simultaneously, I think there's so much that goes into continuing to justify slavery um, by characterizing people of color and black people particularly as less than. Uh, The other thing I think is interesting is you talked about the 1960 census. At that time, how much of the population was enslaved people? Ooh, that's a very good question. Um, Off the top of my head, I do not know Um, sort of the the proportion of the South that was enslaved, Um, but um, I suspect it's quite a lot. Yeah, so a recent number that I looked at suggested that at at the time of the Civil War, there were about 4 million enslaved people in the United States, making up about roughly 12% of the United States, Um, which is really similar to to where we're at right now, honestly, um, in terms of the percentage of our population that identifies as African-American. When you think about kind of you know, I guess some of this seems like it just makes sense. If you enslaved a population of people for centuries um, and then those folks end up emancipated, chances are the relationship is going to be strained due to slavery. Um, And so people, you know, having, I guess, conflict or having, you know, hard feelings or, or feeling particularly violent towards one another isn't really that surprising. I think what is kind of astounding is that that has that that is shaping the the way we feel about gun ownership right now. Can you talk a little bit about what are the things um, that you all have been able to discover, you know, really link slavery to the prevalence of gun ownership in America today? Yeah. So, right. It's not just where the guns are. We think it's also about uh, how people think about their weapons. Um, And so one thing that we have shown is that um, if you look in places which had higher rates of enslavement, those are the places in which um, the idea of feeling unsafe um, and uh, rates of gun ownership are the closest. Um, So more people who feel unsafe, the higher the rates of gun ownership. If you look at places which had less enslavement, um, that relationship is much weaker and some places almost nothing at all. Um, But it's not even just um, about the direct impacts of a location. Um, We've also thought about um, how these sorts of beliefs that guns keep you safe have spread throughout the entire country, because it's not just held in the South. These are beliefs that are held all over. And so what we've looked at is um, essentially social ties. If you're thinking about how do beliefs uh, transmit, um, they transmit through families, um, and they transmit um, through sort of uh, social organizations. And so if you look at Facebook um, and the places uh, that are closely tied to the South, outside of the South. So if you look at where are the counties in uh, the non-South that have the closest ties to, uh, the closest number of friendships uh, to parts of the South that have higher rates of enslavement, it's those counties where we see the strongest relationship between feeling unsafe and owning a gun. Um, and so what we think is happening is as people move out of the South, that they sort of, uh, the U.S. has always been a fairly mobile society. People move around a lot. And as people move around, uh, they both keep track of their old friends, their old family, um, and you can do that through something like Facebook, um, but they also bring the ideas that they were formed in uh, to these new places. I think one of the interesting things you said about that is, you know, the idea that your beliefs are passed on within your family. Um, And I think this is something we don't talk about very often when we talk about slavery. But, you know, when I think about slavery, I often think about slavery as an extension of domestic violence, Um, kind of the wife as the original slave or the original exploited or unpaid labor um, and, and then expanding that kind of into your backyard. I think we forget that often people were related to their slaves. Right. You were people were related to their slaves. Um, They lived in the same homes. Um, You know what? You you know, when you have a a society now where people have all kinds of people in their families, um, 
what does what does that do to kind of reshape people's beliefs? Because I think a lot of times, I think we saw this with Donald Trump, right? When Donald Trump was accused of being anti-Semitic, he was really proud to say, actually, I'm related to Jewish people. Um, we see a lot of people when they're accused of racism or homophobia kind of tokenize the members of their family who identify with the group that they're accused of discriminating against. Um, so, so looking at kind of our families as, you know, historically diverse but also as as more and more diverse as as we you know as we as we embrace kind of this modern moment how does that impact the way we relate to gun ownership the way we relate to race and racism as a community yeah it's a really fascinating question and it's one which um i can't say that i have really good answers for um i think one of the things that we're really interested in is thinking about how changing demographics into place um, affects the way that people think about threat. Um, you know, who is threatening and who is being threatened. And so there's some work that we're currently beginning, um, which is looking at how the changes in, say, the white uh, population in a county over the last 10, 15, 20 years uh, affects certain sorts of uh, ideas about um, who you need to be protected against, what the threats are, how important belongingness is, how important control is. Um, for thinking about the ways in which people are using their guns to sort of deal with psychological threat. Um, but it's not something we have a good answer for. I think we could speculate, but um, the data may actually be out there. So, One of the interesting things I think about your work, Nick, is that you're – you're talking about what slavery in some ways says about white people, which is something I don't think we do very often. A lot of times we think of slavery as black history. I argue all the time that slavery is actually about what white people are, are capable of doing. It doesn't tell you anything about black people, but it sure tells you um, about what, what the white community um, is, is willing to do to exploit labor. That being said, for you, I don't know how you identify, but how does this kind of, how do you reconcile your own identity in this work, your own privilege, your own uh, ability to have this conversation? Yeah, I mean, it definitely brings up a lot of questions. So identify as, as white. Um, and I think when thinking about this, you know, I, I grew up in a city. Uh, I grew up in a place in which I had a police department that was interested in protecting me as opposed to potentially criminalizing me. And so it's obviously given me a lot of, uh, maybe not so much free passes, but I haven't been taxed with the impacts of a society that's uninterested in helping me get ahead. And so when we think about what are the impacts of these really signal events in America, it's just a reminder that history is not neutral um, and the effects of history you know, reverberate down. And to assume that you get where you get purely based on uh, for example, your own efforts uh, seems to radically misunderstand um, how structures in society are formed um, and how they help or hinder uh, the people who live within them. When you talk about folks, you know, owning guns for, for protection and kind of the raising the rising sentiment that you want to have a gun to protect yourself. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that's being marketed to Mar Americans on a really regular basis. Do you think that it's, it's surprising to me, I guess, that men would be more likely to own guns than women um, in, in a society that's saying, hey, you need a gun to protect yourself. Why is it that men are so much more afraid and so much more committed to violence as a means of protection um, than women, even though women are far more likely to be the victims of violence, the, the victims of sexual assault, the victims of domestic violence, the victims of homicide. Yeah, I think it goes back to the idea of sort of what does a gun do? And a gun is a really strongly symbolic object. And in this culture, we've given it symbolic powers. Um, and we've decided who those powers are for, right? They're for white people. They're less so for black people. Um, they seem to be more for men. Um, because of the ways in which it's tied in with a certain idea of masculinity. But that does seem to be changing. There does seem to be an increasing number of, of female gun owners. But I think we tie it to this country specifically. You know, the idea of threat, the idea of you know, living under a government that doesn't necessarily have your best interests in mind is not unique to America. Right? This happens around the world. And it only seems to be in the U.S. in which we've decided that the way you deal with that is by arming yourself. And so I think when you think about why is it that certain groups in society are given the right to have a gun and others are not? I think we have to think about what 
the history looks like in the society in question and sort of what are the messages that are being sent and what are they being based in. If you look in, for example, in the UK, um, you don't see any of this. Um, or even in Australia, which had a fairly American gun culture up until fairly recently, which also has its own fraught history with racial dynamics. Um, the way that they treat guns there is very different um, than the way that we do here. I think it's really interesting to think about who has the the right to a gun. I also think about you know, who has the right to self-defense, who has the right to kill somebody. And I think in the conversation around the Black Lives Matter movement, kind of starting with um, Trayvon Martin uh, and moving, you know, through the this the most recent, you know, police murders of, of unarmed black people or the most recent civilian um, attacks on unarmed black people, there is this idea that some people have the right to kill other people, to be afraid of other people, and to use that fear as an excuse to kill other people. Um, how do you how do you talk about that right within the context of slavery? Because slavery really, you know, um, I, I think really solidified in the in the American psyche that some people are more important than others. Some people, um, you know, deserve violence. Some people deserve to be protected from violence, um, and some people's lives should should be informed by self-determination and other people should be dominated. So talk to me a little bit about the right to kill. Yeah, we think about it in terms of hierarchy, right? What are hierarchies in society and how do they work and who should be on top and who should be on bottom? I think that you're right. When you have a society or a part of society that's interested in maintaining certain sorts of hierarchies, you know, the idea of dehumanization or superhumanization, I think, comes into play. You know, there's some work from some colleagues of mine, you know, which suggests that you know the way that we think about the black body is very different than the way that we think about the white body. You know, that, that the black body is tough, it's strong, it's the sort of thing that can deal with pain, um, and is somehow both not like the white human, um, but also uh, its own sort of odd little thing. And so, when we have a culture that's decided that black bodies are different than white bodies, and black souls may be different than white souls. Um, I think that the sort of processes that you're talking about um, can certainly start to come into play. So I think that's the other thing, though, is I think that folks think that they think something about black people, right? We think black people are less susceptible to pain instead of thinking white people are less sensitive to the pain of black people, right? If you change that and said, hey, it's not necessarily you know, what I think about you, it's me. It's me that is not able to recognize humanity when the person has a different skin tone. It's me that's not able to recognize suffering when the person's a different complexion. Um, again, what does that say about, about white people? And what is the work that white folks need to do to address um, kind of the, the delusion around what it means to be black? Yeah. So I, the second question is, of course, the, the much harder one, right? What, what do you do about this? And it's one which I don't really have great answers for. I'm not known um, for my easy questions. <laughs> right. I, I think, you know, that there's sort of the easy answer, which is, you know, we should just, you know, all get along and really think deeply about what other people are like. And, you know, great. I, I definitely agree with that. But I think the actual work to get there is quite a bit harder than that. Um, and it's not work that I want to sort of trivialize by speculating about it just de novo. Right? There, there's scientists um, who are doing that work right now, and I'm not really one of them, uh, at least not yet, uh, because it is a really radically difficult question, right? How do you grant humanity to a group which you previously sort of either granted them incomplete versions of it, right? How do you top that up? Um, and so I think the fact that there's, a strain of American culture that does that, that doesn't grant full humanity to black Americans is definitely true, right? I think there's very good evidence of that. Um, but how you change that, um, I think, is a, a much more fraught, much more difficult question. Mm. Thank you so much for speaking to that. I'm, I'm curious, Nick, you know, in, in researching slavery and, you know, its ability to protect contemporary American gun ownership, um, did is there are there things that you can do to decrease people's uh, attachment to gun ownership. So as you kind of learn how slavery um, can compel people long term to have this relationship to guns, um, are you learning how to combat that? I think 
you know, one of the things that we're really focusing on is trying to unpack what a gun symbolizes um, and to see how that differs from what a gun actually does. You know, so the idea that a gun helps to keep somebody essentially whole, you know, a gun's the sort of thing that protects both themselves and their loved ones and their communities, and sort of comparing that against the reality of what happens when guns actually do get entered into these spaces. And we think that as people get a better sense of how these things differ, you know, that a gun won't protect them uh, from from danger in the way that they think. Um, it might help them to get a better sense of the balancing test that needs to be done uh, when you bring something that's so unbelievably dangerous into a space. And so by unpacking where the symbolism comes from and how it's built, uh, we think we can help to figure out why it is that it works in a certain sort of way, uh, which might help us get people to have maybe a different view about what a gun really can do as opposed to what they think it can do. I think that's such an interesting thing to say in terms of, you know, like the mythology we have about guns and, and this idea that, you know, that you, a, a gun can be your your window to becoming a hero, I think, is some of how folks think about it versus, you know, the the reality of gun violence in our community. Um, and I think to some extent we've kind of been shielded from from that reality. Um, I'm not saying that we necessarily need to look at the bodies of children who have been massacred at school. Um, but I think in some ways, we've been able to kind of gloss over those numbers or those incidents um, to accept them as kind of a part of our, our daily life. There's a school shooting, you know, once a month in America. We've gotten pretty used to that. Um, what what do you think, you know, what do you think America would would need to, to kind of start to grapple with the reality of, of gun violence and, and the cost of gun violence? Yeah, I mean, the really grim answer to that is, um, you know, it needs even more shootings, you know, in a sense, something that's oh, going to really startle people out. But that's not, I think, a, a particularly good answer. It's not one I would really endorse. I think, you know, that the way that the gun violence is covered in this country is is really different than in a lot of other places. Um, you know, that we have, we don't spend a whole lot of time on it. Um, you know, when there is a mass shooting, it'll show up in the news for a day or two, and then it'll just sort of vanish off the pages. And that's if you're lucky. Um, there's so many shootings that go unre sort of unreported upon. And so being even more clear-eyed about the sort of toll that guns take in communities, I think is incredibly important. Um, and actually keeping it in the newspapers, you know, keeping a media focus on it and getting people to really understand just what happens in these places, what happens to a community after there's been a mass shooting, sort of how does it change the lives of the people who are left behind? Um, I think we're seeing a little bit more of that than we have maybe in the past 10 or 15 years. Um, but still, you know, a, a gun violence is devastating. And it's devastating in a way that I think a lot of other violent actions, a lot of other ways of dying really aren't. Um, mm. And so the more that we can focus on that, you know, the more that potentially we can realize just how dangerous it is to be awash in the number of weapons um, that, you know, the country currently is filled with. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name's Ali Muldrow, and today we're talking about the historical, cultural, and psychology behind gun ownership in the United States with Professor Nick Buttrick. If you would like to join the conversation with questions or comments, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Huge shout out to our team today, producer Rochelle, uh, our engineer Ben, and our news director Shali. Um, Nick, I think, you know, in in kind of grappling with what you just said, I think so much of the conversation we're having right now about gun violence is about the types of guns people can have. Um, and I think that's w one of the more interesting things about having this conversation within a historical framework is that, you know, folks have argued over and over again that the Second Amendment wasn't intended um, to, you know, equip every household with like an Uzi, um, that that what a gun was during the Revolutionary War or during the Civil War is very different than what a gun is right now. How do you kind of um, navigate that that conversation in terms of the historical reality of what a gun was, uh, you know, during Reconstruction versus, um, you know, an AR-15? Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting is the way that we conceptualize these things as symbolic objects. Um, mm. you know, that, you know, a gun is something that keeps you safe. 
and the ways in which it keeps you safe, you know, may, may differ across these, these periods, you know, from the end of Reconstruction to now. Um, I think the fact that we have more access to weapons that are far deadlier than anything that was imagined um, in the 1860s, let alone, you know, the 1770s, um, underscores how far apart the image of what a gun is, you know, the sort of the symbolism and the reality of what it can do. Uh, I think it's at a much wider part than in a lot of other parts in, in, in our history, right? Guns are much deadlier. It's much easier to do much more damage. And so the idea of these things as shields, I think, is even harder to wrap, uh, wrap one's head around, wrap one's head around. I think the story about guns as protection, and I should say, you know, I work in education. Um, and so the the story of guns as protection is really lost on me because I think of, you know, folks who are advocating for the right to own an AR-15 and then like a six-year-old who's who's just trying to like make it to gym class or just trying to like make it out to the playground, who's protecting them? Um, we, we are protecting somebody's right to own a gun and not necessarily protecting the right of a kid to survive a day at school. Um, how How is it that we as a nation aren't grappling more intensely with the the I guess with the with the problem with that narrative, if guns promote promote safety, why are we so unsafe, Nick? Right. <laughs> and right, there's there's one answer, which is we should have more guns. I think that the evidence seems to suggest that that's not a particularly good way of making uh, an area more safe. When you have more guns, there seems to be more violence. Um, when guns vanish from an area, there seems to be less violence. Um, I think you know it comes ultimately down to a sort of political philosophical question of what is a government for um, and what are the rights and the duties of of citizens within that government? You know, is it the job of a government to keep its people safe, uh, well protected, um, able to thrive, or is that the job of some other entity? And I think, you know, if you live in a society which has decided that it's up to every individual to do that work, you know, that there isn't really any sort of solidarity or collective, uh, really anything, you know, there is no society. Um, then I think the idea of using a gun becomes much more appealing. But if you believe that, you know, it's the role of a community, the role of a society to do things like protect small children, um, then I think, um, we should think a lot harder about the ways in which we allow certain people to take on this almost extra, extra judicial, uh, role, um, especially people who are appointing themselves to that to that job. I think it's interesting too to talk about guns as as a means of protection and and to talk about racism because I'm like racism is not about protecting yourself from a group of people just you don't discriminate against somebody to protect yourself from them. In fact, by discriminating against somebody the case could be made that you're making that person dangerous towards you. Um there's a part of gun culture that is about dominance, right? When you when you read about um, domestic violence in which somebody you know pulls a gun on their entire family to kind of terrorize their their family on a regular basis, when you talk about you know folks carrying guns into spaces and and making people uncomfortable by banishing weapons, um, there there is a part of of gun ownership that isn't about protection. It's a, it's about dominance. It's about you know you don't. You don't go into a school and shoot a bunch of five-year-olds because you're afraid of them. Um, and so I, I think I, I want to ask you to talk about, you know, that component of gun ownership in relationship to slavery, because so much of slavery was about dominating. Yeah. And so we think that the idea that a gun helps you to control a situation, however you sort of think about what control means, is a really important part of the symbolism of gun ownership in this country. You know, that the guns are places that bring order. Um, and order oftentimes um, is another way of saying um, a world that sort of conforms itself to the way that I want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you think about something like domestic violence, it can make sense why somebody might try to take advantage of this uh, capacity that a gun brings, um, the idea to order a relationship um, in a way that's good for uh, the, the wielder. Um, I think gun owners also talk a lot about worries about losing this, uh, this sense of control, um, that if they don't have their gun with them, they worry a whole lot more about victimization because they sort of place the idea of control 
more holy within the gun than, for example, somebody who doesn't own a gun. And so this idea that guns are the sorts of things that allow one to exert one's will on the world, I think is definitely something that is tied up within the weapon. And I think it's not implausible that partially that comes from the idea that you're trying to dominate within a hierarchy um, and tracing that back to the dynamics uh, engendered by slavery and its dissolution uh, does not seem unlikely to me, but I have no evidence. So there's that. I, I like that, Nick, you're willing to talk about what you think and admit that you have not researched that specific area. I think only only folks who who exist academically are that um, transparent about, you know, what what you know for sure versus what you think or what you're inclined to think. So thank you. Thank you for the humility you're bringing to this conversation. We have a caller on the line, Randy, with a comment about gun owners and masculinity. Randy, welcome to a public affair. How are you doing today? Uh, good. Uh, actually, that's oversimplifying a little bit, but uh, the uh, uh, PBS did a uh, um, did a, part, a segment on a show about the changing nature of gun ownership, and the uh, because they made the point that uh, people aren't doing as much hunting anymore, and so that's a declining market, and the guns. So uh, the gun uh, manufacturers are uh, uh, are marketing uh, assault weapons, and they're doing it. Uh, and this this is literally true. They're doing it by uh, saying, "This is how you get your man card." Um, and the which uh, strikes me that the people who will respond to that are among our stupidest people. Which means they're the they're the growing uh, uh, growing market for gun ownership, and uh, that's all. I, I like I said. I think that uh, uh, now it's uh, uh, it is a it is a masculinity issue mm. um, for so many people. Randy, thank you so much for for speaking to that. And I think you know the idea that a gun makes you more of a man um, is is something I want to explore a little bit with Nick. Nick, how do you want to respond to to what our caller just said in terms of you know marketing masculinity through semi automatic uh, semi automatic weapons? Yeah, I think that it, it points to uh, an idea that in the U.S. Um, the idea of masculinity is something that you know, is being reconceptualized um, and is being reconceptualized uh, in a very strong way. And if you think about the ways in which masculinity was formed, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, I think it's not hard to see that that sort of approach to what it means to be a man um, may look somewhat anachronistic today. Um, and so for people who are worried about their masculinity, worried about their idea of their place in society, you know, what's left for them um, in uh, an America that looks like it does today. The idea of being able to hold out an object and saying, you know, this will be the thing that makes it like it used to be, or like you imagined it used to be, um, is really powerful, right? It's a way of providing meaning and belongingness um, to a group of people who may be really worried about what it means to mean and what it means to be, you know, live a meaningful life um, in the society. And so, you know, it makes sense to me that there would be groups that would be trying to tie their product to this, this longing. Um, and it's tragic. I think that the way that we seem to have hit upon this um, in some sense is through providing them with incredibly deadly objects. Mm. Thank you so much for speaking to that, Nick. And I think, you know, I, I, you've referred to guns as a, a symbolic uh, object a couple times during this conversation. Um, and I think, you know, I imagine how that must feel to anybody who's lost somebody to gun violence, right? Like the the, the cost of this symbolism is so extreme. Um, that being said, I think you've talked a lot about how the relationship to slavery shaped um, the relationship white folks have to guns today. Can you talk a little bit about how slavery shaped the relationship the black community has to guns, right? You can't watch, you know, an action movie or a music video without without seeing the prevalence of, of guns um, in the hands of all kinds of people. Talk, talk to me a little bit about, you know, how, how black people are 
uh, relating to guns and how slavery shaped that relationship. Yeah, I think, you know, that culture doesn't stay fully restricted, right? It's, it spreads and it morphs. And if you start these sorts of beliefs that a gun is a sort of thing that you need in order to protect yourself and to keep yourself whole, you know, it's not going to necessarily fully remain within a community, uh, especially one in which you see your neighbors doing this, right? That these parts of the South are also parts in the South in which you have really high concentrations of people who remained after the Civil War. Um, and that includes both white and uh, black families. And so if you see your neighbors treating an object in a certain sort of way, it doesn't seem crazy to pick it up yourself. I think also guns are, in some sense, unique um, because you know, if you believe that the world is dangerous and you believe that society is not going to protect you, you know, a gun really can ward off certain sorts of dangers. Um, and so if you're in one of these communities which, say, is better armed and is able to fend off a lynching, you know, that might reinforce certain parts of this broader symbolism, which we then, as a culture, sort of come together and loosely agree upon. And so I think that, you know, the ways in which white Americans, say, and black Americans might treat the gun, um, I think will have a lot of commonalities uh, because, you know, some of the root worries are the same, even if the things that cause those worries may be different. Right. The symbolic threat and the real threat may sort of lead to similar sorts of psychological beliefs, um, which then trickle down in the same sort of way in terms of why somebody might want to own a gun. That said, um, we don't know nearly as much about black gun ownership as we do about white gun ownership. It's something that my lab and the people that I'm working with are really focusing on quite a bit more. Because um, I think that as we dig deeper into the ways in which different parts of society treat the same object, we're going to learn a lot more about the nuances of how the symbolism actually functions. Nick, Nick, I want to ask you one last question, which is really there's been this kind of um, sentiment that, you know, we do need more guns, that everybody should have a gun. And that's how we would sp be safe. And we kind of have this wild, wild west society where the safest person is the person who pulls out their gun the fastest. How do you respond to that and the, the history of that? Um, I can say that, you know, the frontier was not the way we thought it was. It looked very different. It was much less violent. But also that kind of world is a world in which there is no society. Um, mm. And it's a world in which, you know, when you see there are more guns in a place, there is more death. There is more preventable death. There is more needless death. Mm. And so a world in which everyone's armed and is constantly shooting themselves um, is one in which I think it would be very difficult to, to live. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be a very difficult place to be a little kid, that's for sure. Nick, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. Thank you, everybody who listened to WORT 89.9 FM. This is A Public Affair. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. I'll see you next Tuesday. <laughs>